Hear this from Romans 14, verses 13 through 15. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Christina. Thank you, Manny. Church, you may be seated. Um, And if you haven't already, please open up your Bibles, open up your apps to Romans chapter 14. Romans 14, verses 13 through 15 will be our primary text today. My name is Jason. I serve as one of the elders here at Church in the Square. It's good to be back in Romans. Uh, We took a brief break for Easter, um, and we will be uh, back in our Romans series for the next couple of weeks. And then in May, uh, each of our elders, our other elders, Aaron and uh, Derek and Juan, will be sharing a particular text that's been impactful to them in the past season uh, in their own sort of personal devotion or their personal journey. And so that will be our focus in May, and then we'll um, be back for a summer series in the Sermon on the Mount, which will be uh, a joy to get to participate in. But in Romans, we left off in this portion of Scripture uh, where Paul has been talking a lot about judgment, um, and we've been reflecting on that quite a bit uh, the past couple of weeks because, because he has. He tackles the, that subject, though, in this larger heading. If you remember, there's a big shift in Romans from the first 11 chapters in the 12th chapter to how do we live this out. So for 11 chapters, here's what we think, here's what we understand to be true about who Jesus is, what he is like, the implications of his death and his resurrection on uh, w- ultimate reality. And so if that's true, Romans in 12 and following is all about here's how we live this out. And so in particular, in chapter 14, he's like, we need to be living in love. We need to demonstrate love to one another um, and no longer ultimately being conformed by the pattern of the world or even the way that the world demonstrates or talks about love, but to be transformed by the renewal of our mind, it says in uh, Romans chapter 12. That's how we're supposed to love each other. And in particular, what that's going to look like is you're not going to judge each other. You're not going to look down your nose at one another. You're not going to presume yourself better than someone else, particularly because they live this Christian life out differently, perhaps, than you do, especially as it relates to these secondary, these secondary issues. See, love is supposed to rule the way that not only we think, but the way that we live, the way we see each other. And I think, I think we've been learning to discern that a little bit better, that when we're looking at somebody and we know I'm actually not looking at them in love, I'm looking at them in a way of judgment or in a way of superiority or even in a way of inferiority. See, we can look at somebody with pride or with shame, and, and love is neither of those things. Love is a, a confidence in uh, who God is, who he's called us to be. Uh, and that, that's what I'd like to talk about today. I want to talk about how we've learned not only to let love guide our thinking, but now to guide our behavior. See, while the first portion of the chapter is dedicated to how we're supposed to think about each other, right, especially when we differ on these social matters of conscience, but this portion of the text as we move uh, more into chapter 14 teaches us how to be mindful about how our behavior impacts other people around us. And can you imagine if we actually got a hold of an idea like that? To not just do what I think I can and should do, but ultimately to ask, how will my behavior, how will this action impact my brothers and my sisters? 
Perhaps the ones in our small group, perhaps the ones around our own dinner table, perhaps the ones in our own building, or perhaps the ones where you're seated with right now. What does it look like to, before I take an action, to think about my church family? How will this impact them? What will it be like for them to experience this kind of behavior, this application of the gospel? Um, In other words, what I think Paul is going to help us understand is just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. Just because you have the freedom to do something doesn't mean you should. And that's what I'd like to talk about today. I want to talk about limits. And we do not like limits, do we? <laughs> we do not like them at all. Yet, limits are all around us. We are limited by our bodies. We're limited by the hours of a day, the, the days in a week. We're limited by our resources. We're limited by our social, vocational, and emotional capacities. And in fact, you have been wired this way. It's one of the reasons we love technology, is technology helps us, as uh, writer uh, Andy Crouch has communicated well in his book, The Life We're Looking For. It helps us believe, technology does, that we have superpowers that take us beyond our limits. We love technology because they help us to get past, these things help us get past our limits. See, whether it's a car or social media, technology promises a life without limits, and we love it for it, right? We love technology for promising and often delivering in some measure on those things. But what if, what if, what if limits are actually good? What if they're good for you? What if they're good for me? What if limits aren't just something we use to control our children, right? but actually something that we're meant to live under for our good and for God's glory and to be healthy and actually what I think Paul is getting at, to really be free. Paul David Tripp explains that limits are part of God's good design. He says, everyone and everything has been designed by God with limits and it never works, never results in anything good to try to live, minister, or lead outside the boundaries of limits that God has set. This is deeply counterintuitive, isn't it? Contrary to the way that we think and we learn to value and navigate our own lives and define freedom itself. See, but what Paul does in these three verses, though, is I think he helps us see the beauty of limitations, to see the beauty of them. In fact, he's going to show us paradoxically, I think, how true freedom is all about limits. True freedom is always limited. So here's how we'll organize our time to try to wrestle with this reality, this uncomfortable reality of limits actually being for your good and limits actually freeing you uh, in many respects. We'll look at the freedom, that freedom is limited by our family, freedom is limited by our conscience, and freedom is limited by our love. So we'll follow Paul's text in each of those respective verses. We'll look at the limits and the beauty of family, of conscience, and of love. And to that end, I want to be available to God's Spirit. So let's pray, ask for his help, and then we'll get to work. Heavenly Father, uh, we know that left to ourselves, we do and will make a mess uh, of your word and of your uh, world that you have created, the true and the good and the beautiful. And freedom is particularly one of those things that um, has undergone significant perversion in our understanding of what it means to truly be free. I, I know personally I fight just about every limit that's put on me. I find it deeply American to do so. I find it deeply masculine to do so. Very white to do so. To say that any limitation is not okay. So I ask for your forgiveness from the outset as you've been instructing me through this word. And so would you help all of us, Father, in the various ways and shapes 
different ways that we fight back against limits. Would you open our minds? Would you help us to not build a wall of defense right now against hearing from your good and true and beautiful word today so that we can truly be free, truly be people who, as we have already sung about, for who the Son has set free, he's free indeed. We ask for your help in this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in context, Paul has been talking about freedom that we have in Christian community, if you remember, to disagree with one another, which is, again, also quite counterintuitive and wonderful, um, on these secondary issues that we might just see and say differently. And remember, the church in Rome is really diverse like ours here in Chicago. And it's something, though, that was very new to the ancient world. It was unique in history because as the Roman Empire begins to expand its borders, essentially national boundaries are disappearing. In other words, the lines that used to divide up people are no longer dividing people. And the Pax Romana, this sort of way of thinking and even of building infrastructure, began to bring people together that previously were apart. So that means in the church in Rome, some people grew up in Italy. Some were born in that country and in that city. Others had recently moved there with their families from all over Europe, all over Asia Minor, and all over Africa. And so that meant that some grew up worshiping these Greek and Roman gods and goddesses. Others grew up worshiping the God of the Bible. They were, there were some who were rich. There were some who were poor. There were some who benefited from the systems in Rome and some who did not. There were men. There were women. There were day laborers. There were business people. Yet one thing that they all shared in common is that they had begun to enmesh, if you will, their spiritual life with their cultural values. And this is what Paul is trying to pull apart. That some things that you really value, those are traditions. They are not inerrant. But there are some things that are true, that you should build your life upon. And he's helping us pull these things apart. Because when we don't pull those things apart, it always leads to judgment. So this is what Paul has been dealing with. It also led to church members then, who were behaving in particular ways, wittingly or unwittingly, that were harming each other. So Paul now digs into this idea. See, after all, this eclectic bunch, now with all of this baggage, all of these different ideas about what is uh, normative, about what it means to worship, what it means to follow God, what it means to be a spiritual being, what it means to be a good citizen, all those people are now showing up at the same worship gathering, and they're judging the music, they're judging the teaching, right? All based on these preconceived notions. They're all showing up at the same barbecue, talking about, I don't know if that's the way you cook that. I don't know if the way, that's what you're supposed to serve. I, you're not supposed to put cranberries in that dish. Actually, you're supposed to pull, right? So it's these sorts of things. They're all in the same Bible sp- studies. They're all even beginning to f- try to figure out what does it mean to act like a family? What does it mean to be in this together when we have all of these different perspectives? That's the first limit then that Paul addresses. Our freedom is limited by our family. Look what he says, Romans chapter 14, verse 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on, uh, one, on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Now, there's a wordplay going on here that is lost in the English language, but Paul's first century readers would have picked up on it immediately. See, the word decide Uh, that he says there, but rather decide, is the exact same word for judgment. It's the same root word, kina or krino. And the best way to convey this in our language is to say that Paul is asking, or really instructing his readers, don't make determinations on each other and on each other's value, but rather determine to take care of each other. Instead of judging each other, judge that you will not put a hindrance in the way of someone that you love. We should refuse, Paul says, to do anything that will cause our sister or brother harm. 
And to do that, you have to know your brothers and sisters. You have to see yourself as one who is identified with a family. You see, our freedom to do something is limited by our membership within a family. We don't act on our own. We act as family members. This is how we see ourselves. We don't just do what we think or what, if we have an opportunity or an ability to do something. We, we think about its effect on the people in our lives, the people we identify with. Can you even imagine, church, if we became a people who thought this way, who limited our freedoms based upon what was best for our church family, not just what we were able to do and free to do. In other words, we wouldn't just look at the Bible and say, well, it looks like I can do that, as opposed to understanding, if, if I live this out, how will that affect my sister? How will that affect my brother? This is what Paul is asking us to take into consideration. And remember, what he's dealing with, maybe a little bit nuanced or different, in prince, or rather in, in actuality, from what we're dealing with, but in principle, it's really helpful. He was dealing with eating meat. He was dealing with people who saw uh, certain animals, because in ancient uh, Israel, certain animals were determined to be clean and others unclean. And much of the book of Leviticus that many of us have never taken the time to read because it gets, you get really lost in there, right? But essentially, much, much of Leviticus is dedicated to what's called ceremonial laws about being clean or holy and unclean or unholy. God commands Moses' brother Aaron uh, about all this in Leviticus chapter 10. He says, you are to distinguish between the unholy and the common, between the unclean and the clean, and you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes of the Lord that has spoken to them by Moses. Suffice to say, touching certain animals and certainly eating certain animals made you unclean, and therefore you had to go through a ceremonial cleansing, a purification process, things like rabbits, pigs, I know, that, that, was, that must have been challenging, uh, and camel, all of these things are listed in Leviticus as unclean. And so if, if God's people touched or ate these things, they would have to be cleansed. Now, here's, here's what's important for us to understand. God is not saying that those animals are evil. They're part of his good creation. He's not calling evil what he created and called good. These things are not evil. That's not what the law is saying. Rather, what God was doing was teaching his people what it meant to obey, and he was shaping them through limits. The law was meant to shape God's people through limits. Reverend uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones explains that the Levitical law was not based on the nature of things in and of themselves, but God had determined and chosen to make this distinction in order that he might discipline and govern his people. See, the law shaped God's people through limits for their good and for God's glory. This has always been who God was. He cared about shaping us through limits, teaching us who we are, who he is, through all that. However, in the wake of Jesus' death and resurrection, the Levitical purification system, in other words, all of these lists, the clean, the unclean, and getting clean after you've touched something that's unclean, all of that's rendered unnecessary. Why? Because Jesus now makes us clean. And Peter, the apostle Peter, was wrestling with this once, and he had a vision. In fact, three times God gives him this vision of a sheet coming down with all of these animals on it, reptiles and birds. And he hears a voice, Peter does, and it says this, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. What God has made clean, do not call common. And all the carnivores said, praise be to God, right? God calls all animals clean. Now we pull out the smokers, right? We pull out the barbecue. We have a wonderful time enjoying these things. And he says, nothing is common or unclean. God says, it's all good. I made it for you. Now, this is the complexity that though begins to puzzle the first century church in Rome. See, many grew up 
these new Jewish Christians, they grew up learning these dietary restrictions since they were a kid. Can you imagine growing up in a household where certain animals, not only could you not eat them, but you could not touch them? My kids touch everything. They touch everything. So there's likely all kinds of discipline and reminders and constancy of this. This was beat into your head consistently, constantly, every single day. And now imagine you're following Jesus, you're trusting Jesus, you're trying to reconcile all you've grown up with, and you come to that first church barbecue, and they are crushing some bacon. And you're like, yo, this is not okay. This is not okay. It's easy for us 2,000 years later to say, yo, grow up. This is not a problem. Everybody knows it's delicious and wonderful. God made it. That's not what they were used to. That's not what they even read in the scriptures. They were trying to reconcile all of this. And many of the non-Jewish Christians, they were like, this is not a problem. In fact, they probably thought all of those dietary restrictions were quite silly. They didn't understand it. Therefore, some members in the church had a sense of moral freedom that others didn't. They had a sense that doing this was not only not sinful, but it was enjoyable And so now they have a choice to make. Do they eat this meat in front of their Jewish brothers and sisters? Do we? What responsibility do we have in matters of conscience when we disagree, when there's freedom? So what Paul says, again in Romans 14, 13, decide. This is what we do. In the middle of that, we decide. We make a judgment. We determine to never put a stumbling block or hindrance in front of our brother. Biblically, a stumbling block is a behavior and attitude which causes someone to sin. So Paul is not asking us to refrain from anything that makes anyone uncomfortable. There's a lot of very holy things that make us uncomfortable. A lot of wonderful things that make us uncomfortable. But Paul is not asking us to refrain from that. He's talking about doing something that knowingly will cause a person to betray their conscience. That knowingly will put someone in a compromising situation. So we no longer are limited by the law, he is saying, but we're still limited. See, true freedom may not be limited by the law, but it is limited by your family. True freedom is still limited by your family. So what's this look like for us? Well, some of us feel a complete freedom to cuss and to say certain words that make a lot of people uncomfortable, that drawn into that moment, they may say something that betrays their conscience. Some of us feel a freedom to drink, and for others, that's not okay. That's something that would betray their conscience if they were that environment, let alone it wouldn't be healthy for them for other reasons. Some even have a problem being around meat. They have a moral perspective on that that is different from others in our community. It might be tattoos. It might be a movie that you feel a freedom to watch that your brother or sister doesn't. It might be a certain kind of music that you love to play with the windows down and they think is an abomination before God. You see, we may not be struggling with the same sort of thing, but the same thing still persists today. There are ways that we need to constantly give an account for the disposition, the soul, the heart of our brothers and sisters, and not just do as we please. See, the scriptures grant Christian liberty in these and so many other areas, yet your freedom is not a license to stop thinking about your family. In fact, if you're a Christian and you still do what you please you still say, well, I am free to do as I want, then actually what the scriptures teach is that you are the one who is trapped. You are the one who is bound up. If a follower of Jesus cannot deny themselves a liberty, they are merely communicating that they are bound up in that liberty. See, true freedom is limited. It's limited to family. It's limited by family. And when we refuse to lay down one of our freedoms for the sake of our brothers and sisters, we're just revealing we're trapped in selfishness. 
We're bound up in isolation and individuality and separation and greed and fear. Doing whatever you want is not real freedom. It shows that you're bound up. You can't give them up, therefore you are bound to them. But when we give things up, when we realize that true freedom is limited by our family, when we are limited by the needs of our brothers and sisters, we actually begin to flourish and thrive and become something that God has called us to be. Truly united, truly loving, we become a community which is impossible to become isolated in because we, are, we know ourselves as ourselves. We know ourselves as a family. See, the reason to be mindful of our family is so important is because much of morality is a matter of conscience. So we have to get to know each other, right? We have to understand how somebody's mind works, their perspective, their background. In other words, you and I can see or have experiences of the same exact thing. You hear the same song, the same word, the same idea, the same church gathering, and walk away with a completely different experience than somebody else. And when someone watches another person enjoying a freedom, it may do something to their conscience. It may it may cause them to betray their conscience and their conviction, and it may lead them to sin. That's where Paul goes next. Look at verse 14. He says, I know and I'm persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in, in, in itself, but is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. Now, this may seem like some moral relativism, so let's make sure that we're clear about what Paul is talking about. He's going deeper into freedom. Notice he says that he knows and he is persuaded. This communicates a kind of personal thoughtfulness and process. It's not a mindlessness like we've discussed previously. To be a Christian is to not give over your mind to groupthink or mindless tradition. Christians are supposed to think. We're supposed to think like Christians. We've discussed this. And what he's been convinced of is that nothing is unclean on its own. Rather, whether or not something is clean or unclean is a matter of conscience in these secondary convictions. And depending on how the Spirit guides your conscience and mine, we are bound to that conviction. Therefore, your freedom is bound up on what the Lord is doing in your heart and in your mind, on your conscience. Now, before we press on, we should be clear about the matter of the law, because regardless of our disposition, God's moral law still matters. So let's be clear that we're not talking about some sort of like moral relativism, that Paul is not talking about that. A brief aside, if you will. 16th century French theologian uh, John Calvin saw that the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament was divided into three sets of laws, civil, ceremonial, and moral laws. So civil laws are focused on bringing order, flourishing to society under a theocracy, under God's rule. Ceremonial laws are all about those purifications we talked about from uh, Leviticus for atonement and worship. But moral laws were about living in accordance with God's heart, with his character, with like who he is based upon the image that has been imprinted upon us. And because we no longer live in a theocracy, the civil laws are no longer in force. And because Jesus died, the ceremonial laws are, have now been fulfilled in him. But the moral law of God remains in force. Obeying these laws don't save you, but, but ultimately in our salvation, in our transformation, what Jesus is teaching us to obey is his moral law, not his civil or ceremonial law. See, some may call Christians hypocrites because of this confusion. We're hypocrites for other reasons, but I don't think for this one. Um, For instance, many of us do not abide or abstain from eating shellfish, which is a clear teaching in the Old Testament in Leviticus, but we teach a particular kind of sexual ethic that many would think is archaic, that we would abandon one law and not another. Well, those are two very different sets of law. One is ceremonial, 
and the other is moral. And so to understand which are still in force, we have to understand what kind of law it was and why it was that God communicated that. You see, what Paul knows is that the Levitical or ceremonial law has been fulfilled in Christ. So what once was a matter of the law is now a matter of the heart, about the conscience. I even remember wrestling with this as a kid, not, not about the ceremonial law per se, but I remember 10, I said something, I don't even remember what it was, I said something to my dad, found out later that it was untrue, and I went to him almost in tears. You know, as a self-righteous kid, that's a pretty, that's a pretty tragic situation, right? So I go, Dad, um, if I tell you something that I think is right at the time, but I find out later that is wrong, is that a lie? Right? And self-righteousness, I want to be perfect, and so I have to make sure that's my whole moral aptitude. And so I think my dad wisely directed me to my heart. What was the disposition of your heart with that information? What was the disposition of your heart in communicating what you communicated to me? This is what Paul is getting at. That my heart around that information was convicted that this is the truth, even though ultimately it was not. See, what mattered what was, was what I was thinking, what I was believing. What mattered what was what was going on in my heart, in my motivations. See, Paul says that he knows something. He's persuaded in his conscience. However, this verse and this principle is actually not about Paul. It's about understanding where he's convict, convicted, but it's more about the fact that, that uh, as free as Paul might be, as convicted and convinced as he might be, as settled as his heart might be about something, his brother or sister, he is aware, may be just as convinced about something else or about something the exact opposite of where he has arrived. And therefore, his freedom, like ours, is limited by our conscience, and so is our brothers and sisters. They can't do it. They can't eat meat. As free as you feel to watch that movie and eat that meal and enjoy that drink, your brother and sister may be just as convinced and convicted that they cannot. And you are not better than them. They don't love the Lord less than you do. But your freedom is meant to be restrained in order to take care of them because of your conscience and because of theirs. And so Paul is saying it is unclean for anyone who thinks that it is unclean. We're not talking about being flippant with God's law. We're talking about being sure that our conscience limits our freedom so that we can truly enjoy freedom. So we can truly be free with respect to what is civil, what is ceremonial, or if you like, cultural but it's distinct from your upbringing or your own perspective. Similarly to the previous limitation, I think you might, we might think to ourselves, well, I'm my own person, I have my own conscience, and therefore I can decide what I do. And I think it's similar that when we believe that we can find a way around these limitations, we really reveal how limited we really are, how unfree we really are. Because that's, it's not true. It's not true that we as followers of Jesus are meant to find ways to get around limitations so that we can really enjoy freedom. But in surrendering to those things, we find freedom. See, if we don't care about conscience or the conscience of one of our brothers and sisters and conceding to them, what we are realizing or what we really are revealing that we are bound to is tribalism. I only want to be around people who are convicted about secondary issues the exact same way I am. You're bound up in a particular cultural preset that does not lead to freedom, it leads to bondage culturally, politically, and ideologically. This is one of the great problems with the 21st century American church, is it not? That if you are not fully convinced and convicted the exact same way on a thousand things that Jesus never said, then you are not my brother and sister, and that's a lie from the pit of hell. So church, we, we should not get around this. 
we should be limited not by our own conscience, but also by the conscience of our brothers and sisters and see how free we actually become. Paul adds a third limitation. I think it's his most broad. In fact, I think it undergirds the other limitations. This is what's really the driving force that we felt underneath the previous two. See, the thing that ultimately compels you and me to uh, give up these freedoms, if you were, to deny ourselves certain liberties that we could otherwise enjoy is love. Love is the thing that ultimately limits our freedom. Look how he concludes this passage in verse 15. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy, Paul says, the one for whom Christ died. Paul says if you're not mindful, considerate of your sister, of your brother, in fact, if you don't change the way you live in response to your brother or sister, your family members, you're no longer walking in love. Why? Because true freedom is always limited by love. True freedom is always limited by love, most of all. This is universally true, though I think we often miss the implications. Because what is it that we say at a wedding ceremony? Forsaking all others. What's happening? In their vows, a couple is choosing to limit themselves to a single partner out of love for the other. You see, we know that true freedom, or rather true love, is limited. It's limited. Obviously, I know where your mind is going. We don't really look at marriage as freeing. It feels like the opposite, doesn't it? I mean, if you're just going to be honest this morning, whether you're married or not, marriage does not feel like a freeing experience. It feels like a complete constriction of everything that you thought you desired or wanted perhaps in life. See, many of us see singleness as freedom and marriage as a kind of bondage and settling down. We even pejoratively call it the ball and chain, right? This is, <laughs> we don't have a really high view of how much freedom marriage gives you. Yet when we give ourselves into marriage, we actually become free to become something that we otherwise could not have become. The scriptures talk about two becoming one. That is, when we are bound to marriage, we're free to become something new. In fact, in Ephesians, Paul says that that something new points to something even more miraculous. He says in Ephesians 5 verse 32, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. See, when we are bound in marriage, we're free to become this living, breathing metaphor that points people to the gospel. This truism, though, is not relegated to marriage. Singleness bears out, I think, the same ethic, though in a very different way. See, in fact, Christianity is, was the only worldview in the ancient world that saw singleness as a fulfilling, life-giving season or even a long, lifelong status. When Paul talks about singles, he writes to the church in Corinth, he says this, to the unmarried and to the widow, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. Now, why would Paul say this? Paul is saying that contrary to the cultural value that you can live a deeply fulfilling, faithful, and loving life without being married. And in the ancient world, everything, all of your value and honor and worth was based upon your family. And so nobody stayed single because everybody wanted honor in the culture. And so in the midst of that cultural dynamic, Paul says, actually, if you're not married, it's not only okay, there's a lot of worth, honor, and joy that you have not compromised. If you are single, he says, don't be too eager to change your status. Don't think the good life is waiting for you only after you get married. You see, the limitations 
that we experience when we are single are different than the limitations that we experience when we are married, but it leads to a similar kind of freedom. A freedom to express ourselves through love by taking on limits. See, in our singleness, we're limited. Rather, we are uh, limiting ourselves of certain romantic liberties, which others don't. Out of love for a community, out of love for friendship, out of love for a future spouse, perhaps, out of love for the Lord, and denying ourselves certain liberties in our singleness, we are free in singleness to enjoy something that the world perhaps does not know of, which is peace of mind, surety, holiness, purposefulness, mission. We are free to become something new. When we're limited by love in singleness, we experience true freedom just as much as a married couple may. Because ultimately, freedom is not about your status. Freedom is about your surety in Christ. See, along with these more intimate expressions, Paul is telling us that we ought something about fundamentally, that gets fundamentally expressed in Christian community. See, out of love for those around us, we limit our freedoms. In doing so, we not only walk in love, but we actually embody the gospel. Notice he says that when we walk in love, we don't destroy the one for whom Christ died. You see, this is fundamental to the Christian community because it's fundamental to who Christ is and what he's accomplished. Christ limited himself out of love for us. The Son of God is the one, is he not, who had no limits, who was eternally without limits, yet was this limitless God steps into real space and real time. He who was most free allowed himself to take on limitations the limits put on his divinity, limits put on his nature, limits put on his experiences. He became part of a human family. He put limits on himself. He embraced limits. He was limited by not only his conscience, but that of his heavenly father. He limited himself to the bondage of sin and death, but not to give us limited powers in a completely autonomous life. Jesus did not take on limits so that you would never know one. He took on limits so that you would see how beautiful they are. He took on limits so that you and I would realize that's where true freedom lies. That's where true liberation is. Ironically, he frees us to give us a new kind of bondage. Of course, this is still so deeply counterintuitive and countercultural, but Jesus explains this to his disciples. By the way, it's always important to remember, the disciples are not this wonderful bunch of people who did everything right, whose example we're supposed to try and follow. They're deeply exposing of our spiritual condition and give us great hope that our God is a God who repeats himself. He's a God who walks with us. He is a God who loves us despite all of our brokenness. And he says this to them. Perhaps you've heard it before. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But then he says what? Take my yoke upon you. And learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. This is incredible. We don't think of rest often this way at all. Notice he invites the weary to come to him. Love that. He promises rest. Love that. But then he says what? Take my yoke. That's odd. A yoke was a wooden harness fit for a beast of burden to plow a field. In other words, Jesus is saying, come and lay down one burden and take on another. This doesn't seem freeing at all, does it? It's deeply uncommon in Jesus' day for there to be a single yoke for one animal. And Jesus oddly calls this my yoke. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm going to get into this one with you. 
lay down the yoke that I'm not a part of. Take on my yoke and I'll be in it with you. In other words, what's Jesus saying? I'm going to carry the burden with you. I'm going to be limited with you. I'm going to wear this bondage with you. We are freed, in other words, to be bound to Christ. And this new limitation actually brings you real freedom. Why? Because unlike every other back-breaking limitation that you can ever take on, this freedom, this limitation of family, this limitation of conscience, this limitation of love, his freedom will give you life. His, his, his limits will give you life and true freedom. 20th century author Elton Trueblood explains it this way, we have not advanced very far in our spiritual lives if we have not encountered the basic paradox of freedom to the effect that we are most free when we are bound. Trueblood goes on to explain that not just any bondage will do. It's not that limitations are always good. The right limitations are good. The ones that are fit for your nature. The ones that are fit for your redemption. Not just any limit will do. The right limits are freeing. The wrong limits are crushing. What Jesus is saying in Matthew and Paul here in Romans is that every other limitation will ultimately destroy you. And most of them look like freedom at first. All of those will destroy you, but the limitations of Christ that he will put on you will actually free you. They free us as a church family because that's how we're designed. You and I were made to be part of a family. You and I were made to have our conscience connected, our, our bodies, our minds, and our hearts, and our behavior. You and I were meant to share in sacrificial love. See, only the limits Jesus puts on your life are made for you. They are made to enable you to flourish, enable us to thrive as a people. So I wonder, what may it look like to allow Jesus to constrict your life in a way that's good for you? What constrictions, what limits are you rejecting now that actually will lead to your freedom? What does it look like to get into yoke with Jesus, to trust his burden? His burden is light, it's easy, it lifts you, it gives you joy. I wonder if we wouldn't see if we take on the freedoms of Jesus, or rather the limits of Jesus, how free we could become. How free we'd become as a people, as a family, within our own minds, and as we love one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we do not like freedom, at, or limitations rather at all. They feel constricting, they feel suffocating, they feel like they take life away. And so we thank you for this work of Christ who puts to death the shackles of sin and shame and death and a false sense of ourself that we are most free when we have no limitations. Help us to see the beauty of being bound to Christ, of being united to Christ, of being united to each other. We do ask for your forgiveness, Father. We have not been mindful of our brothers and sisters. We've done what we felt like we had liberty, what we had a right to do even, without thinking about how does this impact my sister? What will my brother think about this? Would this cause them to sin? Would this confuse their spiritual journey? Father, help us to have this kind of wisdom. Help us to have this kind of maturity. Help us to have this kind of love. The kind of love that does not destroy those for whom Christ died. 
We desire that because we know that's the stuff of the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven coming to earth, the kingdom of Jesus invading the space here in Chicago, in our city, in our schools, in our families. We desperately need this kind of freedom that is limited. Would you bring to mind now even ways in our hearts and minds, in our rhythms, our routines, where we're rejecting the limits of family, of conscience, and of love so that we can truly be a people whom the Son has set free, who are free indeed. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Church, would you stand and sing with us?